What's going on, everybody? It's the Nightmares Podcast with your host, Mark Conway. I'm here with the usual suspects. Zach. And Brandon. Awesome. The uh, We have a very unique topic today for the Nightmares Podcast. Brandon, uh, this was your idea, so you get to talk all about it. Yes, yeah, so today we're going to be talking about one-off slashers. These are slasher movies that never got a sequel. Maybe they got a remake, but they never got any actual story continuation. Nice, very nice, very nice. The um, uh, you know, I, I um, and I and I'm gonna say this like right off the bat. Um, we're gonna do spoilers, so you know, because um, I don't, I don't feel, I feel weird not being able to talk about the movies that we're gonna talk about. So as we list the, list these movies off, if you haven't seen them, just as a heads up, we're gonna spoil them. Sound fair? No shit. They, I don't think we've ever feared from spoilers before. So. I know, but I wanted to say it at the beginning. I'm sure. Anybody who's listened to us in the past that never got a warning now appreciates the warning. Exactly. Least, so. I'm just, that's just, just uh, you know. Spoiler warning ahead. Indeed. We're, we're not a review show or a discussion show. Indeed. So, um, fair enough. We like to talk. So, I, you know what? I'm going to actually go first because I, I do have just one uh, for this. Mark is going to go first. The um, Yep, I am going to go first. So, um, I actually been wanting to watch this movie for a while. And I was pleasantly surprised... Brandon's giggling like a schoolgirl yeah, for reasons we don't understand. There is a joke I was thinking about saying, but I decided against my better judgment not to say it. No. Does it have anything to do with the male genitalia? In a way, kind of. Please, indirectly. Please say the joke. No. Uh, Mark likes to go first. That's why his girlfriend is mad at him. <laughs> and, I, and, and I play the fifth on this one because there's a few things... That's another one I was gonna. There was a quick, there was a quick response, and I'm like, mm, nope. Um, I'd like to stay in a relationship. We're four year olds over here, in case you haven't noticed. Oh God, I'm. Uh, it's amazing. That's childish, even beyond my standards. Dude, at the horror facts of the day, I did a fucking a death fact on the death erection. I was literally a 13-year-old the entire it's fucking just time. Erotic. All that episode was was a detailed description on erotic asphyxiation back in the fucking day. <laughs> I have not watched this one yet. The, uh, <laughs> dude, Winston roast me at work. He's just like, you know Mark's talking about people hanging with penises, right? I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> what in the hell is going on over there? <laughs> no, dude, it's literally I wanted to do a segment called Death Facts. And, and, I, and I caught that I'm like... I have the maturity level of a 13-year-old, so I'm going to do this. The, um, it was, yes, it was about, it was erotic. When they, uh, that's how they figured it out. When dudes would get hanged, they would, get, they would pop a boner. So, and so that's what I talked about for a whole episode. Uh, anyway. And now people do it just for fun. Yep, that is true. Uh, so anyway, so I uh, went ahead and watched uh, the uh, Bradley Cooper movie, uh, The Midnight Meat Train, which is actually a... Sh- <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's it. <laughs> Even my roommate's laughing in the background. Zach, do I need to mute your microphone so that Mark can continue? It's going to be hard for both of us. No <laughs> shit. Dude, we can't get... Dude, when fucking Dennis brought out alien penises, we couldn't go the entire episode without fucking laughing. So, so Zach and I have a, have a real problem. We, when we look at each other, we just start laughing. Because we've tracked so many jokes over all the years. The second we make eye contact, all of those jokes come flooding back. And then Brandon, you know, is just slowly giving up on life while we chuckle away. The, uh, my, Listen so, out that we just talked about dicks and erotic asphyxiation, and now, and now we're, we're talking about the midnight meat, meat train. 
the um, uh, and ironically enough, it's it's based on a short story by Clive Barker. There's really? A, yep. So even that. more. Like, I've heard of this. I've never seen the movie. <laughs> the, uh, yeah, I know. I'm, I'm really, really shocked. It's from the uh, uh, from volume one of the Books of Blood. Okay. Um, based on that particular set of books. Yeah, because I've heard about this movie. And I've known about it for a long time, but I really know nothing about it. So the so except the fu- for the poster. Okay. So um, so the the whole thing is Bradley Cooper is actually a art artistic photographer in New York, and okay. uh, he he takes pictures of. He's one of those, like, kind of douchey dudes who takes pictures of, like, homeless people doing crazy shit. And, like, it's art. It's high art. The uh, Yeah, it's one of those guys. Takes a picture, turns it black and white, sells it for $1,000? More or less, yes. So, what a dick. So, it literally is that. And um, and he starts, um, you know, he's like, I really like... Just because it's in black and white doesn't mean it's good. No, yeah, it just means you're pretentious. The, exactly. The uh, So, he starts... Um, a, um, somebody... Uh, he ends up getting like a deal with this eight with this little high end art collector, and she says you need to be more involved. Like you take pictures, but like you know, it's not you don't stay long enough in whatever situation you're in. You don't stay long enough. So he's like, all right, well, I'll go. And I guess I'll go fix that. So he begins to to like go out at two a.m. every night at um, and just explore New York, and he ends up chasing after a couple of these um, hoodlum guys. And who are about to assault this girl? He uh, kind of saves her in a you know in a weird way. Um, uh, reminds them about a security camera that's standing right there. And then uh, he is um, you know and he kind of shoots her as she walks into the subway. And then he sees a hand kind of um, uh, you know um, block the door so she can get in. He's like, oh, no big deal. And then he sees in the newspaper the next day that she's missing. Um, and then you also see that uh, that she was also brutally murdered by. The um, by the guy who is who's never given a name. Um, he's literally I don't even think I didn't even know in the credits that they even get him, gave him a name. But he's um, he literally is murdering people on the train, and and you kind of learn through the process that he's literally um, <clears throat> dressing them like you would dress a uh, dress a deer or dress a, a you know a um, a cow. Like, you know how you, you, you skin one and then you yeah. hang it up, you drain the blood? He's literally doing that to human beings in the train. Um, and, and it always happens at 2 a.m. And, you know, and it goes through. And as you, you learn more and more weird information, and at first it just seems like a crazy guy, like a standard slasher literally murdering people on the train. But as time goes on, you, feel like you realize there's kind of a pattern with everything that's going on. It's always at 2 a.m., or like the 205 um, train. And then all of a sudden, you know, you're starting to realize the train is doing something weird. Like where it'll like go past a stop that it wasn't supposed to, it, it was supposed to stop at and then kind of go off to another way. Um, and then you kind of get into this whole like supernatural thing and you're wondering what the fuck's going on. So Bradley Cooper ends up becoming more and more obsessed with this guy. Um, he starts following him throughout the streets of New York. Um, and then obviously you see him kill, he kills a couple other people. Um, the one thing I will say though too is like it is brutal, which is which great. Um, there's a bunch of great scenes in it, brutal wise. The problem, you know, it, when it goes CGI, like you notice because the movie came out in 08 and you're like, uh, okay. But, um, but when it does do practical, you're like, oh, this is pretty fucking good. And it's definitely blood. It's, it's definitely up your alley. Um, I, these, it's definitely bloody. There's people literally like slipping on other people's blood in the train. Um, I, love, I love Sarah's response 
she some girl literally slips in somebody else's blood and she's like, Oh, you're on the floor on a subway. <laughs> she was more fucking concerned about this chick crawling on the subway than actually crawling in somebody else's blood. Look, I well, mean, the when blood you. is actually probably legitimately cleaner. Yeah, no. I was going to no say. No doubt. When you step on a fucking subway train and your boots are. You just hear the. Uh, so Bradley Cooper ends up getting kind of obsessed with him. He has a fiance um, uh, uh, throughout the whole, the whole story. She's really concerned with what the fuck's going on with him. And then he starts to get more and more involved. And eventually he gets on the same train that he's on. Ends up taking a bunch of pictures while he's killing and dressing um, all these people. Like, literally, like, it's methodical how he's, how he's doing it. Like, he's packaging up clothes. It's, like, literally one of the most effective hitmen I've ever seen in my life. Except he kills random people. The, um, and then it takes a really interesting, you know, really weird turn. Um, uh, you know, Bradley Cooper ends up getting knocked out by the guy and ends up literally strung up upside down like a fucking like meat and all of a sudden a bunch of like creatures come out and start attacking him and then he wakes up in the basement of a meat packing factory which has a access to the subway um uh, the oh and there's another scene too where he actually um uh, chases him and finds him at the, his place of work where he works at a meat uh, factory um uh, so the uh, and then something weird happens meat packing plant meat packing plant yes the um uh the uh, and then they shut up, Brendan. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and then Bradley Cooper just starts fucking wigging out. He becomes really weird, erratic, um, and really strange. And I guess it, it's fucking it, like eventually it gets to the point where the girlfriend's trying to investigate the other guy, and then it all leads to that the subway they've actually been doing this for like a hundred years. I uh, literally a subset of ghouls. I'm assuming, or demons, mm. uh, literally are being fed humans. Uh, you know, like once, uh, I, I'm assuming almost once every night on a consistent basis. Like, they um, are once every week or month. I have no idea. This is really, like, very Clive Barker-y. Like, yeah. you, literally at the at the very end, there's, there's literally a bunch of people that are strung up upside down. They look like... It's exactly how a meatpacking factory would would look with cows, except it's with humans. Eventually, it turns out that Bradley Cooper is transforming into what this guy is, the actual killer. And then, at the end of the movie, in very Japanese-style horror, it's kind of pseudo-ambiguous, ambiguous, but he... Ambiguous. Li- ambiguous, thank you. The He literally <laughs> takes over the role of this other guy. The uh, um, And then... There's a whole, the, the, and I think this is comes back to my biggest disappointment with the movie. There, it seems like I could tell it was from a short story, and because there was, I was, I wanted a little bit more background on it. Like it, it like this movie failed where Cabin in the Woods succeeded, mm. with like explaining the background and how and and how like the, there's a process to it and like the government's involved and like. There's a lot of other shit. There's a lot of moving pieces to get this to happen. And, like, there's elements of that. Like, there's a cop involved who, I guess, covers up the murders. There's a conductor, the conductor who, who actually... Drives the train. Drives the train in the other one. There's a whole scene where he gets in a fight with some huge guy, and he almost loses the fight, and the conductor literally comes back and shoots the, and shoots the guy in the face. And he's like, I'm fucking disappointed in you. So there's a whole, like, there's a whole society and reason, but the conductor kind of gave, like, a one-off answer. He's like there's two different worlds and like every once in a while somebody steps into that world we need to do this to keep the world separate 
Um, and I'm like, I like I would have liked more explanation about what's going on, like more like why are the you know I understand that you're saying these creatures have been here for thousands of years, whatever, you know, and there's a whole group of people who serve them, but why do you serve them? Like you know, are they involved in the government? You know, are they involved in you know, do they make the world run? You know, like it just there was more explanation in like I would have liked more explanation in Cavern of the Woods yeah. than that, but it's like why don't you just eradicate them? Yeah, something like you know, like what's what's keeping this train, so to speak, train moving. But I I don't think that was ever really the point of it. Like a lot of this was like you know, like the the wheel keeps turning. Like you know, at the end he becomes that guy, and then like people get murdered every day, and they go missing. I mean, they they're reported missing all the victims because they never find any evidence or blood. Um, but New York is such a transient city; they just assume people just fucking disappeared. Yeah, I mean it's New York, so the um, and it's very Clyde Barkery with the flesh and you know, you know the whole the the whole thing. You know, very similar to how I mean, good. Yeah, I mean, no, I mean that's very. But you can tell it's very, very him. The um, and I and I dug it. Um, the um, at the end, like I, I wanted to know more about the backstory, but the emotional impact was there. Like, I don't want to say that, like, you know, I, and, I, and the funny thing, the, the fucked up part is I think if they took a little bit more time developing, like, a little bit more of that backstory, I think I would have felt even more of an emotional impact. Like, it had, like, the skeleton of Sicario, um, but it didn't have, like, the the big, like, the big impact that Sicario had. I don't know, you ever see Sicario? Yeah, Never I've, cared seen, to. Uh, I've seen both of them. I think I think it was one of those things that it was kind of limited by. Oh, and by the way, there's a bunch of like early two thousand shit going on there. Like they, there's a bunch of shots where they go in and out when they're having a final uh, fight. They go in and out of the um, uh, of the train from like the camera goes in and out of the train, and they also do that bird's eye view where they go from room to room to room, but there's no roof on top. Of the uh, room, yeah. like, and I'm like, I'm like, this is super fucking 2000. They used to do this shit all the time. They don't do it anymore, and I think that maybe they were limited by their budget and their time. I think you know, and also too, I've never read the short story, so there may not be much there. Um, but I, I think knowing Clyde Barker, there probably was some more there, some more depth there, and I would have liked to have seen it. Even if it wasn't there, I would have liked them to manufacture it. Because the point that they were making about, you know, you know, us being, you know, at the end of the day, if, you know, we are at the top of the food chain, but there is somebody, you know, there is another subset that may be above us. And then at the end of the day, we'll just be treated like cattle to them. It's really, in- it's interesting in that regard. I got the point. And then also Bradley Cooper's character um, is a vegetarian at the beginning. <laughs> so, and, you know, and, he, and then he becomes literally um, obsessed with meat towards the end. The um, So, I mean, it was... It was good. Um, I really enjoyed it. It has a lot of those two thousand tropes, the um, a lot of stuff. And funny enough, I don't know. You ever saw Limitless? Yeah. Um, it's it has quite the cast and crew. Oh yeah, the um, uh, um, uh, it had a, a lot of that phonetic pace, like a lot of those camera shots. Remember when he's like, you know, he's on the drug and things are like mo- like shifting all around him. It feels a lot like that. That's why I said like. Um, I think I said to you guys earlier, like, I can understand how somebody saw this mm-hmm. and then said, I'm cool with casting him in uh, Limitless. Because it's this, it's a similar character, um, except almost in reverse. The, um, uh, but, and it's also a, um, a similar phonetic pace. And it's also very, it's a very New York story. 
the um, uh, but uh, but Brandon's tripping out about the about the cast. The um, there were quite a few people in that. Yeah. Um, I, the um, I know that. Uh, yeah, we've got Vinnie Jones. Uh, who yep. you got? Who, we I know from Gone in sixty seconds and, and Euro Trip. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And then also he Soccer was in. He was he in Snatch. Yes. Yeah, I remember. I remember Snatch. Was Snatch. Oh, X Men, X Men Three that I don't want to think about right now. Look, that line was great. Yeah, uh, we've also got Brooke Shields in there. Uh, oh yeah, I keep forgetting Brooke Shields is the art dealer. Ted Raimi's was, in there. Yeah, a Raimi brother. And then for uh, the director, I'm not even going to try to pronounce his name. He's a Japanese. He's a Japanese director. director. Um, but I'm just going to read a couple of his notable credits. He directs a movie called Versus which is an action movie that Justin showed me last Thanksgiving, and that was a crazy time. Uh, and then he also directed Godzilla Final Wars. Great fucking movie. The, um, I can see, yeah, I can definitely see that. The, um, and then also, too, like you, I can definitely see, when I think I, when I researched this a little bit before the podcast, I knew that the, uh, that the director was Japanese, and I could see, like, this is how Clive... Like if Clive Barker's story and Japanese director clashed, like you know, and came together, this is the style that they would go for. And it it has a lot of those. Like it's 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 shot very similarly to the similarly. Yes, it's a, it's a new word now. Um, very <laughs> similar to the ring, the Japanese ring. Okay, it has that kind of like that that tint to it, that hue um, to it, and I, and I think it's 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 really well well shot, um, with the exception of those. Those uh, you know those early two thousands tropes. Um, I think it's it's very very well done. I just would I would have liked a little bit more um, on it, like for an emotional impact. But for the movie that it was um, and the time period it was done in, because I know this is before James Wan made horror a little bit more commercial and there was a little bit more money being attached more to it. More commercial with financials with um, uh, um, with the Conjuring. Okay. The um, there wasn't you know there was a little bit more you know budget opportunity with that and and, and horror was being you know was uh, at that time was either you were Japanese or you were doing um, uh, fucking found footage movies and found footage movies were fucking super cheap. Oh yeah. The uh, well, so the I mean, benefits to them. Well, I mean, Paranormal Activity was oh nine and this was oh eight. Oh okay. Um, the uh, I I guess when that was earlier on. But yeah, but obviously there was just no. It, it, I could tell that they wanted to do more. Um, I could feel it that they wanted to do more because it felt like there was more to say. But I, I think that they were limited by a budget because I don't think people were thinking in that regard at that time about horror movies being more than just horror movies. I mean, like you know, I was obviously that was a product of the '70s. You know, when you had The Exorcist, which was you know a great horror movie, but it was also saying something. And well, so, so when Friedkin was making the original Exorcist, he didn't even think about it as a horror movie. He thought about it as a drama. Yeah, people just perceived it as one of the scariest movies of all time. And he was like, all right, if people want to say it's horror and they like it and they want to pay money to see it, I guess it's a horror movie. Yeah. You know what the, <laughs> That's pretty much what he yeah, came down no, I No, I hear you on that. And I think, and I think that there's just, I think, I think this was the first step into taking horror movies more seriously. Um, uh, you know, and then you can see that as it goes on. And now we've gone too far the other way <laughs> on a lot of these fucking Conjuring Universe movies. Um, but I, I, but I mean, like, this is the type of this is like in, intelligent horror. 
like and I like intelligent horror. The um, I like something that that's making a statement and actually has a good story surrounding it. It doesn't have to just be. I mean, don't get me wrong. I fucking love like you know the stabby stab and bloody blood everywhere. It's great. But like you know when you can be intelligent about it um, and be that at the same time, more power to you. Um, and in fact, I even prefer it that way. The um, uh, and I and you know and I wish this makes me want more shit by Clive Barker to be done because I know I could feel it I could feel his intelligence um, come through in the story like I know he's a very very fucking smart guy the, um, and I can feel what he's saying um, through it I just wish that they had I wish there was more that's the only wish I had but uh, overall solid movie definitely recommend watching it it's definitely worth, uh, worth the time um, I would like probably a, a, a you know an update on it uh, maybe a 4K um, uh, print scan and maybe clear up some of that, you know, some of the old uh, special effects tropes that they had, maybe, you know, advance it up a little bit. But they have to go redo the CGI on that one if yeah. that's the case. So. But, you know, the good news is it's not overblown. Like, there's yeah. there's two shots. There's one shot that I hate and there's one shot I fucking love. And, and, and one of them is a POV shot of a girl whose head just came off. And then literally, it's it's a POV, and then you see her head rotate, and then you uh, look at her body. Um, you can see her body without the head, and then it rotates out, and you see her head, um, which is really cool. But besides that, it was really good. I highly recommend it. Zach? What's up? <laughs> what, was, what, hey, what was your pick on that? A couple of this one-off. <sighs> all right. had some difficulty with his. Yeah, no finding shit. One. Well, dude, he's such a fan of all the fucking, like, you know, the, the franchises. Yeah, that's part of the reason I love them. There's a lot to love in those franchises. So, finding one that only had one, I was just like, fuck. Um, one that I wanted to watch for the longest time was My Bloody Valentine, but... You know, there's an asshole here that decided to steal there's that one. else that picked it. Yeah. <laughs> Whoops. Fucking dick. Um, there was one I chose, but then we realized if we would have done that, it would have been a Valentine's Day podcast. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's My Bloody Valentine, the remake My, uh, Bloody Valentine, and then there's the movie Valentine. Yeah. So, that was fucking fun. So, after searching for, like, hours last night, what the fuck do I want to watch? Um, I stumbled upon this one movie on Amazon Prime, and it's one of those independent movies that, you know, find their way on there. It's a movie called The Last Girl Standing. Do you want to take a guess on what this movie is about? Oh, is it I a female revenge story? Nope. Oh. It's literally about the last final girl standing. Yeah. What else? Yeah, I don't know. I'll give you a hint. Wes came up with the idea first, then Brandon did, then you did. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Someone did it! <laughs> so, yeah, this is about what life is like after you survive a fucking slasher movie. And I gotta say, it was a pretty good fucking movie. I actually enjoyed it. Especially, you know, considering it's an Amazon Prime movie. I was just like, oh, I don't know what to expect. Yeah, they, they dump a lot of garbage on it. Yeah, but no, this one was done really well. It's like, oh, somebody fucking did it. I'm gonna watch it. <laughs> this is why I didn't want to do it. But, um, so yeah, the movie's called The Last Girl Standing. And it's about, you know... What if somebody's, what's life like after somebody survives a fucking slasher film? So, yeah, uh, the movie starts off during what is essentially the end of a slasher movie, you know. Girls trying to run away from the slasher, you know, finding all the dead bodies and stuff. And um, the slasher in this movie is called the Hunter. You know, it kind of is, is doing these pa this pagan ritual type thing to a bunch of, like, these people who are out camping and stuff. And the way uh, she gets away is um, the guy uh, kind of has her cornered. And she backs up, but she hits one of his traps. 
And what the, the trap does is it backfires and ends up stabbing the motherfucker in the chest. Nice. Yeah, so... Um, and I gotta say, the first ten minutes, bloody. You know, there was a lot of good kills and stuff in there. And, uh, yeah, it was pretty fucking violent. And uh, the gore in this movie, top-notch. Fucking loved it. But after that, you know, it progresses, you know, you show her life. Uh, it takes place, I believe, five years later. You know, they had a nice intro sequence. You get a lot of news clippings and stuff like that. You, you'll learn the name of the killer. Um, there's, like, uh, you know, just, like, this holy shit. Um, there's even the tagline, real-life fucking slasher movie just happened. Holy shit. And, uh, yeah, I thought that was great. Um, I would say the... Uh, the pros and cons of this movie is one, I like the idea, the story is pretty good, the characters are pretty enjoyable, but I feel like it could have either, there's definitely room for improvement, I could see there's a lot more potential for it, and I feel like, I, I couldn't find the budget for this, but I feel like if anything hindered them, it was probably the budget. Brandon, if you could find that, that would be much Stand appreciated. By. Yeah, because um, I would say, like, when after the uh, whole slasher bit, you know, the first... Um, you know, when you're seeing, like, what her life is like and everything like that. There was a few things that I felt were weird in the editing, you know, pacing-wise, sound-wise, so I don't know what was up with that. But, essentially, she's living in an apartment, you know, very bare bones. It looks like she just moved in, but she's kept it that way for the past four years. She's very, you know, she, she's still suffering from PTSD and everything, you know. She sees this killer all over the fucking place, and it's still haunting her. So, over the course of the movie... um, you know, she starts, she's working at, um, what, um, a dry cleaner, and, uh, this new guy comes, um, he's interested in her, and they kind of, you know, you know, he's trying to, like, get involved in, uh, her life and everything like that, and, you know, they get involved in everything like that, so she gets a new group of friends, and then, um, you know, she starts visualizing the killer a lot more often, and she thinks that the slasher is back, and he's gonna target these people now. So one of the friends that she meets through this new group of characters, you know, she wants to try to help her get closure and everything like that. So she brings them out to, she brings her out to where the, you know, the supposed killer was buried. Oh, God. Okay, yeah. so this was actually funded on Kickstarter. Okay. Uh -huh. And it had a goal of $3,000. And it ha and it made six thousand three hundred thirty-one dollars for six thousand three hundred dollars. Damn good job. Let's see if they have wow. a breakdown of the budget on here, but keep going. Yeah. yeah. So you know they go out to the uh, burial ground, um, and she digs up the body, finds the body, burns it. They return back. You know, um, I, I'm, I'm skipping over a lot of like what else, what other happens in the movie yeah, yeah. and stuff. I'm just kind of glancing over it. But um, at the end of the movie, um, you know, she finally has the closer she needs and everything. They're at this art gallery because one of the friends is like one of those artiste motherfuckers and all that. Well, you know. It was filmed in Austin. Yeah, you know what? That's actually a very good point. <laughs> so, um, you know. Okay, so here's what they had to say about the uh, budget. We are asking for $3,000 to cover the blood and gore effects that will take our grounded, character-driven indie production to the next level. While this is a more dramatic take on horror, we still want to make an R-rated movie that delivers the goods and makes a satisfying slasher flick. We've managed to scrape together enough money to pay for other non-negotiable items for the production, such as catering, locations, and insurance, etc. Mm -hmm. However, there are additional costs that can't be bartered down or deferred. While Last Girl Standing could be considered an art house horror film, it's still a horror film through and through. The talented duo of Edwin Wise and Jason Vines have designed lots of fun blood, gore, and practical effects, but we need your help to make their ideas a reality. 
Our $3,000 goal will cover all the practical gore effects and make this the horror film we want and you deserve. It's a small budget, but you're going to love what these guys can do. Then there are a couple behind the scenes picks. Any amount we make over $3,000 will go to our hardworking cast and crew. So they made $6,300 from Kickstarter, and then it sounds like they had some additional funds beyond that as well. Yeah. Um, I would definitely say all those funds were well spent. It's uh, a 10 to 15 grand worth of, worth of a movie, probably. If you want probably. to, you know, you know, round up and everything. Um, yeah, very well spent. Um, the It's looked great, sounded great, other than in the, you know, beginning when they're showing what her life is like. There was a few, like, audio jumps it's like they do a weird quick cut to a scene and the audio would spike because you know you see a laundry machine or mm -hmm. something like that it didn't feel like a jump scare it just felt like something that was like ah, that probably could have just been mixed a bit better yeah i i would say you know they probably could have mixed that better but that's just a personal call on that one um okay so yeah the crux of the story where i was getting to so yeah she's at this art show or whatever and she's about to go do her new boyfriend or whatever and then she sees the killer stab the guy in the chest and she just sees the guy, like the hunter like stabbing her current boyfriend or whatever and then she goes nuts and kills the hunter one of the other friends walks in what the fuck have you done it was really her who killed him oh. she's seeing all her new friends as the hunter and she's just lost her fucking mind now and she's killing all of her new friends because she thinks that so the she essentially becomes the slasher yes yeah. slasher so essentially movie. what it is the first 10 minutes in the last 15 minutes of this movie are where the slasher part of this film comes dude, in. Dude, thematically, man, we watched the same fu you know, same fucking movie. Yeah. <laughs> Little, literally, my my lead character becomes the, uh, becomes the killer, yeah. and then your lead character becomes the killer. Yeah. Um, I thought it was really awesome. It was actually sad, too. I'm just like, oh, fuck. <laughs> yeah, and that's yeah. where we're going. And then, um, you know, at the end of the movie, her new friend that she's been hanging out with and going through this whole adventure with she, you can see she's starting to get the similar side effects that, you know, the other girl went through. And that I, it's kind of like the looping thing. Like, the last girl standing is now going to be, you know... It's kind of like implying that this thing is like a chain reaction that's going to keep getting passed down and shit. Jesus, Jesus yeah. Christ, we really did watch the same movie thematically. Because that's, yeah. that's literally what it's about. Like, just the perpetual cycle of violence. Yeah, um, I'm really glad I looked for something other than a mainstream 80s slasher or a maniac, which was another thing I was going to go with, the Elijah Wood one, because I'm like, I really enjoyed this one. It's a small independent movie, and for a $6,000 budget, this was... Six plus. Six plus thousand dollar budget, this was really fucking good. Nice, nice. And it just, again, it... Well, I say, put some fucking effort into your goddamn movies and you can get something really good. Yeah, great writing, great acting, great cinema of photography. It was just an all-around enjoyable picture. Nice, nice. I love, so, love that. Yeah, if you have an Amazon Prime account, I fully recommend watching this movie. It's a good time. No alcohol required. Indeed, indeed. I'm stealing Dude. that from Jeremy. Dude, what you, you're fucking describing the, <laughs> describing the whole thing of the killer coming back and everything else. I was like, wait a minute. I know the rules. <laughs> you burned him with fire. He's not supposed to show up for another two movies. This is ridiculous. No, because I... And then, and then you start explaining, like, oh, Because for the most part, because I'm, like, trying to think... Because as I'm watching the movie, I'm trying to think of all the angles this thing can turn. Because in one of the newspaper clippings you see at the intro, you see there's, like, a group of people trying to find the body or whatever. So I'm like, oh, is there going to be some cult or some shit knowing that she's the person who survived trying to kill her or whatever because she's seeing like because you know over the course of this movie she's seeing like hunter totems and stuff like that like she starts stalking the group a little she finds a skinned rabbit but when they go back it's fucking gone and stuff 
you don't know if she's actually going crazy or if the hunter, you know, successfully did his pagan ritual until the very end. So, oh, nice. Yeah. The, um, I think it was a very well done movie. And then, you know, once you hit, like, that moment, you're just like, oh, okay, that's the angle they went with. But for the most part, you know it's going to be one of, like, two or three ways this is going to end. Yeah. The, um, you know what? And I, I figured that out with thrillers, mysteries, and horror. If you have me thinking in that mentality, you already have me. They um in the in the how's this all gonna you know what's going on how's this gonna work out you know how's this you know what's gonna happen next like once you, once I start asking those questions the movie already has me they um uh, and that's and that's the that's the best part and I felt the same way with mine and I would definitely feel the same way with yours the um, that sounds awesome the, yeah uh, very fun movie I fully recommend it it's a good time um, cool. so. Yeah, and hey, you know what? If the group uh, who made that movie ever listens to this podcast, good for you guys. You made a great movie. I fucking loved it. Six thousand dollar plus budget. You just beautiful, beautiful. Good, just good work. Or, or better yet, you know, come on, come on, come on the podcast. We would love to have you talk about the fucking movie. If you ever want to come on our podcast that only five people listen to, we would love to have you. <laughs> We're up to seven. Oh, seven. Okay, <laughs> my, my apologies. I think three of it is our, as, as us. Oh no, it's you. I don't fucking listen to. I I edit the goddamn things. The um. I can't stand the sound of my own voice. The uh, I I need to listen to them to to make sure that we got yeah, that's still good after. Course, a good course. Of Mark time. is my quality control. Gotcha, brother. <laughs> the, uh, so, B Man. All right, so uh, my pick is the original My Bloody Valentine from he's 1981. The, he's the asshole who stole my pick, but I'm kind of glad he did because well, I found a better movie. Well, this is the movie that kind of inspired me, suggesting the, suggesting the idea because uh, I was watching it a couple weeks ago and I thought, you know, this never got a sequel. We should do a podcast about slashes that never got sequels. It got a remake, but that's it. And a remake is not a sequel. Correct. So. Did you see the remake? No. Did you see the remake, Mark? No, I never got a chance. Okay. The, um, I haven't seen any of them, but I want to watch both of them. I do find it hilarious, though, that both fucking the guys who played Sam and Dean both ended up in an early 2000s horror. Yeah. The, um, uh, I think Sam was in Texas Chainsaw, and then and then Dean was in was in My Bloody Valentine. No, Sam was in uh, Friday the 13th. Oh, Friday the 13th. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Okay, yeah, yeah. The um uh, yeah I remember but it was it was weird to see both of them and they were like very much in the yeah, supernatural. Okay. Um, I like uh, how you call two thousand nine early two thousands. Yeah, late. Okay, it was definitely late. But no, I, I do agree with you. I remember when I um after watching Supernatural, I went back and rewatched Friday the Thirteenth uh, remake just because I forgot what reason it was, and I'm like, holy shit! You, you wanted you wanted to punish yourself? <laughs> Again, um, I I can enjoy the remake of Friday the Thirteenth because it's just another Friday the Thirteenth movie. It's Jason killing people in fucking Crystal Lake. Hearing Derek Mears talk about at that convention about what he brought to the role of Jason made me appreciate his performance more. He did a but good job. Watching the movie again when I got the box set just a couple weeks ago, I am so bored by that movie as a whole. I don't get it. Yeah, I really only, don't. And, you know, I, and I'm mistaken. There's only one of the remakes that you absolutely hate. Oh yeah. The um, uh, I don't know. The yep. uh, fucking nightmare. Yep. The yep. Um, that one's down there. Yeah. But yeah, so anyway, getting back to my pick, My Bloody Valentine, 1981, classic slasher movie, uh, one of my favorite slasher movies. I love it. I think it is up there with the original Nightmare on Elm Street, the original Halloween. It is one of my favorite slashers, just mm-hmm. in general. Um, and so when I was watching it uh, yesterday and prep for this podcast, um, I did things a little differently. Instead of just watching the movie, I watched it with the director's commentary on the uh, Scream Factory 
uh, Blu-ray release of it. And so what Scream Factory did was they actually um, had the original negative, um, which is the actual film that rolled through the camera when they shot it, for mm -hmm. those who don't know what a, an original negative is. And they did a complete restoration, uh, and they did both the, the, the original theatrical release, but they also restored as much as they could from what got cut out of that theatrical release. So there are extra um, gore shots, kill scenes, essentially. Um, I believe most of those, if not all, are on the older Blu-ray as well, but not rescanned and cleaned up. Mm. Um, but on this commentary, uh, he talked about a lot about the making of the movie, but this was also his first time seeing this newly constructed version of the movie. So it was really fun to hear him like as he's talking, and then all of a sudden he just goes, oh, they were able to save that shot. That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> so it's basically Brandon's clone. Yeah. The, uh... <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's always fun when you listen to a director's commentary or a crew commentary or a cast commentary, and they're just as excited about the movie as a fan would be. <laughs> yes. But can you blame them, though? I mean, shit. It's be no different than what, what, what will happen when we do commentary for Living Nightmares. Yeah. Um, yeah, all of our commentaries for a four-minute short. That, we'll, yeah, it's going to be chaos. Dude, we'll, we'll, no, we'll just Trying to fit all that shit in there. Dude, we'll just pause it every time somebody wants to say something. They uh, pause and then say something. You can't do that during a live commentary. On you can't do that on a commentary. Yeah. Oh, that sucks. Just like, no, wait, go back, go back. Anyway. Um, but yeah, so he also talked about just like what he put into the movie and what he wanted the movie to be. Um, and it's like he wanted it to be a more like character driven piece. Yeah. Um, like other than the opening kill, you don't get a kill until like 40 minutes in, which is nearly at the halfway point. Everything in between that first kill and that 40 minutes in kill is all just uh, story setup, character building, because uh, he didn't want it to just be just some guy in a mask just hacking at people. He wanted you to care about the people in the town. He wanted there to be an actual mystery, um, which I'll back up a little bit and talk about what the movie's about. So there's a Canadian mining town, and uh, it's been 20 years since they had their annual Valentine's Day dance. Uh, the reason why they stopped it 20 years prior was because two of the supervisors for the mine uh, left their crew basically down in the mine to go to the dance. They did not check the methane levels. There was an explosion. All the miners were trapped. There was only one survivor, and he had to resort to cannibalism um, with the, on the other miners in order to survive, which drove him crazy. A year later at the dance, he killed a bunch of people, mm. and they locked him up in an asylum and canceled the dance all for 20 years. So now it's 20 years later, people have kind of just forgotten about the guy, so it's like, okay, dance is back on, but now deaths start happening again. Of course. Because um, it's a horror movie and death needs to happen. Absolutely. Yep. And it may or may not be that original minor. Mm. I'll let you discover that for yourselves when you watch it. Awesome. Um... Because I have a lot more behind-the-scenes information that is legitimately interesting. Yeah, fair enough. Um, so it's uh, the sound of like the breathing tubes from like if you've seen any poster or picture from this yeah, movie, yeah. you've you've seen the mask. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
And it was important to him for the first kill not to just be a first kill. He wanted to establish the sound of the killer, the look of the killer. Um, so it's not just a basic thing. It's So that way, from that opening scene, whenever you hear that sound, you know, trouble's afoot. Yeah. Um, so that's cool that he, even though it's a small thing, the, the fact that he put that much care into just the opening says a lot. Um, they actually filmed in a real mining town. Nice. Um, and, and in Canada, uh, it's Canadian production. And he tried to employ as many locals as possible to help their local economy. Um, a lot of locals were PAs, uh, set nice. dressers, drivers. Nice. And in fact, years later, um, he met uh, somebody in the Canadian film business who got their start as a PA on My Bloody Valentine and hadn't stopped working since. Nice. So Good for him. He, he was very proud that somebody who got their start on his crew was still working. Uh, they did build a mine set just for the fight scene at the end and the explosion because obviously they couldn't do that stuff in the real mine for safety purposes. Really? Of course. <laughs> um, he also talked about how like um, coal mines, like you imagine them being just like black, but they're actually painted white with like a calcium powder to prevent sparking. Huh. Of course, because all the coal dust and everything's going around, it looks black because it's so dirty. Mm. And so when the town knew they were coming, they were just like, oh, this is embarrassing. Our coal mine's just filthy. So they repainted it. Oh, no. <laughs> and when they got there, the director's like, this looks like a Disneyland ride. <laughs> so... The art department. So they had to spend that's, a little extra what, money. It's when real life people meet film people. Yeah. They, uh, they, they're just like, they're like, oh, we wanted it to be nice. And like, no, now it doesn't look authentic. It's just yeah. like, wait, what um, the fuck is this? So they had to spend a little extra money for the art department to dirty it back up again. Oh. But that goes into his philosophy for this movie was he didn't want anything to look new he wanted everything to look used or lived in so all the costumes were from thrift stores because he nice. said there were just so many movies at that era where you could still see the fold lines in a character's shirt because you can tell they just took it right out of the package he didn't want any of that in this movie <laughs> um so yeah he just wanted everything to feel real he was very much against like tropes so you've got the fat guy in this movie, which the fat guy in most movies is always like the comic relief. It's like and everything. second or third to die. Yeah, but in this movie, uh, he wanted the fat guy to be like the respected leader that everybody looks up to and has nice. the hottest girlfriend. Nice. Okay. Let's do what happened, which happens in real life. Yep, and then really the, the one trope in the commentary they mentioned is like, I tried to think of a way around this, but I just couldn't. So I was like, all right, that's my one. That is my one that I will let pass. And that was the, we can't tell the townspeople because it will cause a panic. <laughs> All right. The, uh, you know what? Sometimes, you know, but that, it was like, that you know, just unavoidable, yeah. man. Like, I don't know what to tell you. The, um, uh, I mean, it's in every movie. It... And that, that was kind of his thing. He was like, okay, I mean, that wouldn't actually happen. But it's been in, it's been in Jaws. I know. I'm literally going to say that. So people I was will. Say, it's literally it. the point. <laughs> yeah, that's the point of Jaws. So it, if Jaws can get away with it, so can you. Don't worry about it. Yeah. I feel like that's such a small town thing. 
But yeah, they uh, they did use a real mine, um, nice. real locations wherever they could. They used the actual showers that the miners used, <laughs> which they don't have shower heads. They're just like it's just water coming out of pipes, which inspired a kill that happens later on in the movie. But you have the actors actually acting in the showers. Water is on. And he said, and he mentioned, yeah, those showers did not have hot water, by the way. So oh. those actors had to act with cold water spraying on them. Oh, that must have been fun. Yeah. Oh, well, that comes back later for a little story that I already told you yesterday. Um, yeah, he also talked about uh, this bar that they shot in for one of the locations. And he was talking about like how like every department truck, like the grip truck, electric trucks, art department trucks, so on and so forth. And he was like, you know, if at the end of each day of filming, if there's no case of beer in that truck, it's not a real movie. So as sort of like their product placement deal, uh, they're like, hey, bar, if you let us film here, will you supply us with beer? And they're like, sure. Nice. Love it. <laughs> um, yeah, he was also like, even for the music, he didn't want like stock library music. He wanted like actual licensed music, which back then he said it was a lot cheaper to license music, yeah, um, especially if you're just getting like country western stuff like he wanted for this movie. But he didn't just want any song. He wanted a song, even if it was just for like one lyric, something that has some kind of relevance to the plot, even if it was just for one lyric. Because um, that was his other rule was anything that goes into the movie has to be for the movie. The movie. And he also talked about how the uh, he heard through the grapevine that the song in the closing credits was a song that uh, Tarantino would play every night after rap for the day for the cast and crew on Inglorious Bastards. Nice. <laughs> and he said that was a huge honor to hear that. And yeah, he just took as much real stuff as possible. Like, there's a scene where the miners, after a long day of work, they're just hanging out in the junkyard with their cars, getting drunk, and cooking TV dinners on the engine of the car. Wow. <laughs> that is some redneck shit if I ever heard some. Dude, that yeah, is and fucking he was like, awesome. When, when he saw them actually do that, he's like, that's going in the movie. Oh, yeah. I, I want these to feel like real people. That's going in. I love it. I love it. That's amazing. Oh, God. Um, Dude, I know people do shit like that in Arizona. Like, they'll get cookie dough, put it on their fucking windshield, and then just watch the shit sizzle. Oh, yeah. And make an actual cookie. Oh, yeah, dude. Do, like, Pennsylvania coal country, dude, and, like, in fracking country, dude, they're all, like, crazy rednecks, bro. And then the last thing I have before I start getting into, into the kills, he did mention there was almost no ADR for this movie. Wow, very yeah. cool. He said they had a very good sound person who did both boom and the mixing recording. So it was one person, and he did a fantastic job. So, nice. Which sound is always difficult for independent productions, and especially that is a very pre-digital era. So you really had to trust your crew at that time. Yes, you did. Yes. Um, so, yeah, so there's one kill where uh, the... Uh, minor killer uh basically uh takes his pickaxe and basically just goes under the chin right through the eye nice. and the eye pops out and unfortunately there's a shot of the eye actually popping out that did not survive but uh the rest of the scene survived for this new cut and it was actually a very good looking prosthetic eye nice. popped out of the skull so that was pretty cool then the uh the shower kill 
basically impales a woman's head onto that open pipe shower. And he said, unfortunately, there's another shot that didn't survive where it's like you see the water spraying out of her mouth. A little bit of that idea survived. Like you see it from behind as somebody's looking at her reacting. But unfortunately, the actual like head on shot showing it didn't survive. But yeah, so that kill is like during when the dance is happening slash dance is over. Mm -hmm. You know, some people have left and all that. Um but the uh, the woman who got killed was wearing a cashmere sweater. Mm. And with cashmere, it doesn't soak anything in. No. So, like, all the water and blood just pours right off. Mm. And so the producer was like, you need to reshoot this. I, I want it bloodier. Like, there's no blood on her clothing. It's and the cashmere. Dire- and the director's like, it's cashmere. <laughs> and we, we, we can't go back and reshoot everything with a new costume. Like, that would wreck cunt. Or we can't give her a new costume for this. That would wreck continuity. So we're stuck with the cashmere sweater for her. So he still had to reshoot it. And he basically Who the fuck in a mining town can afford a cashmere sweater? <laughs> and so anyway, he's back in the cold shower. He's sandpapering this cashmere sweater oh, just so Jesus. it will absorb something. I think I just I think, And I think from I just, the cold, he actually got died. he actually got pneumonia from the cold. And he's like, I got pneumonia for something that I had to reshoot, even though it looked pretty good to begin with, and there's barely a difference here. Yeah. So, I do agree with Mark, though. That was something that I thought was fucking hilarious. Who <laughs> fucking afford that in a goddamn mining town? Yeah. Um, man, when they shot in the real mine, uh, that was something that he called the first time he ever said shooting in available darkness rather than available light. <laughs> Um, but the only lights they're allowed, the only movie lights they're allowed to bring down there were just like little 25 watt lights. What the fuck are you going to do with that? <laughs> the, yeah. And it's were like, they concerned about tungsten's, uh, light? Yeah. Cause light like, all right, this, a... this, the smallest tungsten light I have is a 150, which is yeah. tiny. Maybe like a little bigger than the size of a fist. Bigger than that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah maybe... Not quite twice as big as a fist, but maybe like one and a quarter, one and a half times more. And at least and one this, and a half. This was a long time before LEDs. Yeah, oh, like yeah. 150s are small. But yeah, so that's a 150 light. And even at um, a 400 ISO camera, uh, wide open lens, pretty sensitive to light. Uh, again, you got to get it pretty close to human face to make it make a difference. Um, and of course, film is a lot less sensitive. It's a lot less sensitive than digital. And of course, you don't have as sensitive, fast lenses back then either. And you have a light that's 25 watts opposed to 150 watts. So, yeah, so basically you hear a guy ask the director, so like, where do these scenes go? Like, where do you think they ended up? And so pretty much he was talking, and so that, the director then talked about how, um, because they were a lower budget uh, production they couldn't afford video duplicates of everything and they were cutting their negative mm. for the actual edit and pretty much once you cut the negative you can't really put it back together mm. and so with the MPAA at that time the movie suffered what he called the death of a thousand cuts which is instead of the MPAA saying take out this scene 
They say take, take out, out these frames. Take out five frames. Oh. Now take out seven frames. Now take out eight frames or whatever. Um, and so what happens is that's a scene that basically the entire thing had to go. And so if they're continuously cutting five frames here, six frames there, seven frames there, another four frames here, eventually you're not even going to be left with a scene. It's just frames on the floor that just get swept up and thrown away. Mm. Um, so, yeah. So, yeah. And of course, if you're shooting, of course, if you're just chopping off like one single shot here and there, it's easy to lose that. Nice. Okay. Over time. That makes sense. I fucking hate the MPAA. Dude, everyone that's in horror hates the MPAA. Um, so, that being said, the um, your particular movies, your particular picks, we all picked one uh, one movie. So, if you could make a sequel to the movie that you saw, what would it be about? I wouldn't make a sequel. I'd make a prequel. The, I was also going <laughs> to open it up to prequels as well. Yeah, the, for mine, I, get, um, yeah, for mine I, would, um, I would love to see a uh, prequel. See okay. how that whole situation got started, and then, you know, bada bing, bada boom. Yeah, it goes right right in, and then do a whole you know maybe a whole two you know three hour movie of prequel all the way into the uh, actual. Not every movie needs to be three hours. The uh, but you can buy both the movies. Yeah. The uh, yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah, the, I I agree. I would watch it. Yeah. So Brandon, um, this you know there's a lot more uh, you know this is a little bit more history attached to this. So I'm, like, I'm curious, like what would you think you would do for a sequel? If the rights for the sequel were to fall in my lap. Yeah. And I were in charge of it. Knowing what I know about what the director said, I would try to stay as respectful to that vision as possible. Okay. Because um, he did have a huge hand in the screenplay and the story and, of course, every facet of that movie. And knowing that it wasn't just like one of those, I'm a director for hire and I'm just going to sleep through this production. Like... Um, I forget his name, but the guy that directed Return of the Living Dead Part 2 notoriously hated horror movies. And that actually caused a lot of friction with the cast and crew during filming. And when I rewatched that with Justin a couple weeks ago, you can kind of tell, it's just like, we're not having fun watching this. And it feels like it was made by a person that wasn't having fun making it. Yeah. Um, so knowing that this is a movie that is near and dear to the director's heart and knowing, especially after hearing him talk about how much of his blood, sweat, and soul that he put into it, um, knowing what he would do for a sequel, I would want to stay as respectful to that as possible. Yeah. The um, And I actually would do exactly what Zach, uh, Zach did, which is a prequel. Um, uh, because a lot of the, you know, in the actual movie, the girlfriend goes into the, um, into the killer's house and finds train schedules from like the 50s, the 20s, like 1886, like all these different train schedules with all... 2 a.m. written on all the different trains and this is a specific train that they're on. So I would have loved to have done a prequel to go more into the detail about how all this started because I think it actually did start in like 1895. Mm -hmm. So there was a point of origin when these creatures started to come out and start to eat people and there was, you know, something, you know, this organization happened. So something happened in 1895 to start all of this. So I probably would go back to that time and see how all this started, and then maybe see how it progresses through through time okay. up into the modern day, because um, there's a lot of history there, and I would have loved to have you know touched on that, touched on that. But I also want to explore more about it. it it's interesting. Like, yeah. It's interesting about how you know how do they get away with this for so long? You know what systems are in place to make sure that it, it continues. So it would be cool to go back and, and and try to go through like the you know 
all the different, the, the 20s and the 50s and the, the 70s when New York was on fire. The, uh, so um, uh, so that has been our uh, The Nightmares podcast on the one-off killers. Or ki- um, one-off slashers. Uh, the one-off slashers, sorry, with um, or horrors with no sequels. Um, the, uh, so thank you so much. And then Brandon, uh, close us out with your usual speech, sir. Yeah, thank you for listening to this episode of the Nightmares podcast. You can listen to all of our previous podcasts wherever podcasts are available. Mm-hmm. Also, be sure to follow us on social media at Midwest Horror Network on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and Slasher. And, of course, if you are checking us out on YouTube, if you can be so kind to stab that like button, smash that subscribe, and click that little dingy bell to be notified every time we drop amazing content right here on the MHN um, network. Um, well, I, that was a double superlative. Um, Midwest I, Horror Network Network. Yep. Um, Good I, job, the, <laughs> the, um, Hope you proud of yourself. And then I'll, I'll, I'll proud of myself every day. Uh, and then also, if you are checking this out on the any kind of streaming service, go ahead and press that follow button so you can also be notified every time we drop a new episode of the Nightmares Podcast. Thank you so much for hanging out with us. We will see you next time. <laughs>